I mean, what can happen when we get all these nations together and then one of them decides that they don't really want to play nice anymore with this uh, with this union? So you basically, well, I mean, you basically, you basically, your argument is the same as uh, in Star Wars, right? That uh, the basically <laughs> Gal- Galactic Republic would be uh, taken over by the Emperor and then created the uh, <laughs> regarding Galactic Empire. <laughs> that is a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, yes, if po- if Poland, you know, decides that. That a Sith Lord now takes over Poland and decides to just destroy everything from within. Like, what do we do? This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 22. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Our show brings together young professionals from all around the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy exciting, interesting, and easy to understand for the everyday person. Today, we are joined in the virtual studio by our usual contributors, Stephen Howard and Toms Rotfelders. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. On this episode, we're going to tackle one of the most consequential issues facing the European continent today, the topic of collective security. Since the end of the Second World War, the standard power dynamic in Europe has been that of the victorious Soviet and later Russian forces versus the nations, the various nations of Western Europe, with strong backing from the United States. Essentially, this can be thought of as a struggle for influence between the powerful NATO alliance on the one hand and Russia on the other. But in recent years, the effectiveness and importance of NATO has been questioned by both Americans and Europeans alike. With the world headed towards a multipolar system of several powerful nations dominating world affairs, European nations have increasingly talked about the need for a more limited security partnership, one that would be exclusive only to Europeans and would not rely on the United States as heavily. Some European leaders are even going so far as to propose the creation of a united European military. So what are the challenges of providing for collective European security? And do we risk another devastating European war if we get this wrong? What do you guys think? I think that this is actually a uh, disassociated from it. Very interesting topic because right now the U.S. is warning the the Europeans against um, cooperations like the Permanent Structured Cooperation or PESCO as they call it, which is going to be a Obviously, what it says, a permanent structured military cooperation, which combines uh, the security policies of most of the EU states and provides for basically a common defense fund. And that is, well, you think of that and you think, oh, that sounds like a great idea. That sounds absolutely fantastic. The Americans are kind of afraid because we have this NATO thing that is a already a defense, collective defense treaty that we are supposed to be tied to. And... That's really the only thing that the big difference between the EU and the uh, NATO is just a couple outlying members, including the United States. So if this uh, PESCO gains a little bit more traction, gets a little bit more important, um, it could supersede NATO to an extent because it's more it's smaller. So it's more focused. It's more focused on individual issues. There's not things like hey, are we going to have to fight in Venezuela? Because, hey, guess what? Pesco's not going to have to fight in Venezuela. They're nowhere near it. And it's uh, 
that that scares European or I mean European I'm sorry American lawmakers who see the NATO ties to Europe as a I guess a vital tie between what you would call the Western world. Okay, I might add on this a bit. Uh, well, basically, uh, in Europe itself, there are also countries which are not so much, which do not want to go European way of defense so much, but rather stay with a NATO security guarantees. So the way how they see Lispesco and European army is actually the way how to strengthen the United States security guarantees it has regarding the Europe and NATO. So basically, I think that my point might be that we sh maybe shouldn't be so much afraid of having closer ties uh, regarding European defense because it also might help American allies and uh, actually make the transatlant transatlantic link stronger. Is it going to make the transatlantic and transatlantic link stronger though if you don't have that? It, it, we all think about hey, we are. Uh, a Western kind of view of things, blah, blah, blah. But if you don't have that informal tie or the formal ties, those informal ties will start to fray. I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of, is that the EU itself is going to be its own pole of power in this new um, hyper, or, I'm sorry, not hyper, uh, multipolar world. And uh, there's a lot of U.S. lawmakers who don't want to see a multipolar uh, world. But I think if the United, if the, sorry, if the European Union wants to be a multipolar power, if it wants to be the center of power in the new uh, multipolar world, then it has to have these structural reforms. Uh, because currently, I maybe, I don't know how much you guys have researched the topic of European Union's foreign policy making, but... Actually, currently, it's very hard to come up to some concrete policy actions uh, from all the European countries, actually, to, to do some change on the ground. Uh, I mean, like, uh, we might have European army, but unless we fix the way how the foreign policy is form formed, how it's made within the European Union, I don't think that we can be a global power. Sure. And now I'm coming at this from the kind of the U.S. perspective where... Obviously, the thing that got me onto this was the uh, Financial Times article, U.S. Warns Against European Joint Military Project. And that really got my interest on this. It's, I don't know, it's kind of, uh, in, do you think that the United States is kind of fretting about nothing and there's going to be no joint military uh, project that really comes about from this? Well, I think that definitely there will be sort of resistance because, as I was saying before, a lot of countries, including my, including my own country, Latvia, we are strongly against having uh, like a European army which which would supersede NATO security guarantees because there are a lot of countries which still which still see that NATO should be the one which provides the the most basic security guarantees for Europe. And there are countries which are saying that why should we duplicate? Why should we duplicate um, the things that we already have? So, uh, so, so basically, I think that um, mm, there might be a cooper closer cooperation regarding that, but um, I think it might take some time, and there will be resistance. So, Tom's, I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on how do you think that this would work? In, within the context of NATO itself. So how would this type of military partnership actually not 
supersede NATO, but how would it work within NATO? Because that's, and, you know, Stephen's kind of alluding to it too. The reason why Americans are freaking out about it is because, you know, we have this idea that NATO is the only thing stopping World War III in the European continent, that without NATO, surely Russia will just roll over the rest of everyone else, and we are the only ones, we're the last ones standing. So that's kind of how the United States sees that. And I wonder if, um, you know, if you can kind of provide that context of that this wouldn't necessarily destroy NATO, that it might actually add to it in some way, I think that would get a lot of Americans on board with, mm-hmm. with this idea. Well, actually, yeah, as I was saying, it's basically the way, the way how you form it, right? So you can, you can go two ways here. The one way uh, is the one that uh, that will make America angry and maybe make America a bit worried, right? The one that basically tries to supersede NATO. Like, But there is another way, which basically means that... Uh, Basically, European countries, they try to um, maybe coordinate defense spending inside the NATO a bit more or some sort of structures which are overlapping with, with NATO currently. And basically, just Europeans could take some burden of some bureaucratic burden or, or some structural burden that, uh, that NATO has on, on their shoulders. Right. But at the same time, they admit that basically NATO is the state is the main like security guarantee guarantee for Europe in in any ways right so basically they are just trying to make their cooperation like security cooperation regarding certain practicalities uh, better within within European Union so we can also help NATO and our American allies so I'm worried about not just the kind of the formal ties that we're talking about right now, which are the military links, but also kind of the informal links. And that's one of the things that I know Washington was also really concerned about was, and I quote from the Financial Times article, Washington said that the rules for the EDF contain poison pills that would prevent companies outside the EU, including the US, from participating in military projects. Now, I understand why they're doing this. If you have a... Uh, if you want to have a, some sort of military uh, force, whether it be internal to NATO or external from NATO, you need a military, uh, what is it, a military defense spending complex? Oh my gosh, I'm going to forget the phrase for it. But Military industrial complex? Thank you. That's what you need. You need a military <laughs> industrial complex. And it seems like uh, EU is kind of taking a tact from Donald Trump in this and kind of imposing not tariffs in this case but strict non-compete clauses for u.s uh military uh companies that you can't uh or u.s defense companies i should say you can't participate in any of these projects to build uh different uh military whatever it might be guns tanks whatever it might be and that's also kind of concerning because that's an also an informal tie between the united states and the eu i guess i don't know if you thought what you think about those informal ties? Mm, well, I, I might definitely agree that there might be certain friction, especially uh, regarding the, um, I, I guess, arms and military military procurement lobby, uh, United States, which of that, that in a case that you are guys losing uh, money from the business that you might have with Europe, right? Uh, but, at, but at the same time, um, I mean, like. Uh, I think the the thing that matters the most is how these are how these weapons are actually like uh, like like uh, used, right? And uh, well, if if we look purely from security perspective, not not o- not only from business perspective, right? Then I think that maybe if we have some sort of um, 
closer cooperation and we are themselves ourselves interested to spend more money on defense actually that's what trump has said before right that we should spend more money on defense yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if we are actually interested in doing that so i think uh it, it might actually help you, and uh, we just have to talk diplomatically and see uh, whether we can um, sort of like avoid these uh, these concerns that um, military capabilities of Europe could be used against uh, American interests. Sure, and I, I think that one of the other things that came out during this entire time as well was uh, Angela Merkel's statement on uh, where the UE should, uh, EU should go, right? Where the EU should not or should treat the United States, China, and Russia the same way, kind of uh, setting aside any sort of uh, military defense projects or anything like that. And is that ga- is that gaining? I know that you don't have that, or at least your country doesn't have that opinion, Tom's. But is that a gaining opinion in Europe right now? Because I mean, Angela Merkel's a serious person, and if she's saying that, I've got to be thinking that there are more people in the EU who are thinking. We are our own power, and we should not be aligning so strictly with the U.S. Mm, so you mean that your question was that whether we should uh, align uh, morally with Russia or China? Was that your question? Uh, not, not really. It's more uh, um, what more is like the, a non-aligned sort of thing. Is that uh, kind of what you're either a non-aligned or a kind of um, so Angela? What I was going for was Angela Merkel had said that. Uh, the EU should not be aligned with the United States, Russia, or China. And I didn't know how prevalent an opinion that was in serious circles, in serious foreign policy circles. Well, well, basically, I, I mean, like, uh, for Merkel, it's pretty obvious to say that Europe should be <laughs> should be a country which can protect its own interests, right, in, on international stage. Because, I mean, like, uh, there is a lot of criticism that... Um, Basically, right, like the European Union has been a pawn uh, in a great power games for a long time. I mean, like, uh, if you look at the challenges that European Union is facing, like the refugee crisis, situation in Ukraine, basically, uh, European Union has shown that it doesn't really have a thief to change the, th- the situation on the ground, right? So, basically, her statement might be that... Um, we should limit the external influence the like the, the the external actors have on the european union that that might be my my take on why she said that but um well definitely it's is that, uh, sorry well is that a is that a prevalent opinion is that some do you, from when you've uh, talked to people around there is that something that a lot of people hold or is that just a it's it's more I, I just, it's, it's more like uh it's actually more opinion for more like uh leading European states I think like with the ones which are kind of like uh, want to lead you know like uh, Germany France uh, the ones oh, sure. the the ones who are like um, uh, behind all the initiative projects of uh, Euro- closer European cooperation uh, for Latvia and smaller countries I guess. Uh, we are currently just saying that we like the idea of it, right? But when we are going to practicalities uh, of what actually it entails, we might um, we might um, look on it case by case basis. Did that answer, did that did that answer to your question or not? No, yeah, that that, that did answer my question. Okay, I was and I I don't know I'm. 
it's really a lot of the sum of these sorts of things that are coming out that are that was really shocking to me and worrying to me. Obviously, you had the U.S. letter to the EU saying, hey, stop with your stubbornness or protectionism, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I, I agree with you completely. I found incredibly ironic coming from the United States to the EU. Hey, you're spending too much on your military. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny to me. But yeah, um, yeah. well, well, that happens. Then, that ha- that happens when business interests are getting into play sure. in politics. You know, like of, of course nobody wants 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 to lose the money, uh, what they might have from arms purchase from Europe, because you know, like European uh, market is also pretty big. So, oh, it's definitely yeah. it's, it's got to be what the second or third biggest market on earth. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so Tom's, I had a thought based on sort of alluding to what you were saying before, where like the uh, the the nations that want to sort of lead that initiative, um, if this were to, you know, come to fruition in full and there was like a full, you know, essentially European military, that sort of thing, do you think that that would lead to a lot of sort of political infighting now? I mean, I think that part of the reason why we do see that to some extent in NATO, but to a lesser extent is because the United States is just that giant dominant force that it's really hard for you know another nation to sort of step up and try to take the lead on that. Do you think we'd see a lot of political infighting and a lot of you know posturing for power within the organization if it's made up of um, that sort of collective and there's no one giant state that sort of contains the entire apparatus? Uh, you mean like internal resistance of uh, one European state dominating others? Well, one European state trying to you know, t- trying to sort of call the shots within that European military, like France and Germany would essentially just be at each other's throats trying to say like, no, I'm the real leader of this organization and you're secondary. Do you see that as like a possibility? Mm, well, well, actually, if we look at the realities of ground, currently Germany is the leader of Europe. Like, <laughs> every, no, no, yeah. no, nobody really wants to say that aloud, but everybody knows that in, in any ways. So, <laughs> so, so, so basically, I mean, like, if there would be European army, everybody knows that French and German entrepreneurs, French and German leaders would play the biggest role in there. And if you're asking me about the infighting... Um, well, we can currently actually see infighting regarding this idea of European of European army. I mean, like, I don't know if you guys saw the speech of Merkel, which they which she gave to the parliament on October last yeah on October last year. But basically, when she said that EU has to have its own army, there were like uh, half of M- MPs of the European Parliament there were like shouting yes, and the other half was shouting no. So basically, we can already see that there will be a friction on how close we should cooperate within the EU. So, uh, so I think that we will definitely have a have a lot of work to do re- regarding our internal unity before we can like go forth with this project. I wonder how much that plays into the rising populism <laughs> that's coming throughout the entire world, which I mean, just struck in Australia yesterday again but uh as these as countries become more populist in uh, i forget what the parties are in france and in germany but are these countries also pushing for more of a european outlook because that's kind of that seems to be the rising party right now and i i guess i don't know exactly where they stand on a european defense fund i would assume that they're against it but then they're also against like all international treaties so i guess i don't know where that dynamic is going to push anyone? Uh, well, uh, actually, if you ask about 
the ways how populist parties might utilize this idea of European army, uh, well, I, I might say that actually uh, there could be um, some opportunities to use this as a base of, say, of saying to the voters why the EU tries to take away our sovereignty. So yeah, that, that could be the de case definitely, right? Uh, I think the populist parties themselves, they are... Uh, they are. They really don't uh, support the idea of having closer integration in the European Union itself, and uh, European Army is one of those elements, one of those pillars. So, um, so I think yeah, they're also uh, also against it definitely, and uh, and um, it might play if you ask me in, in the hands of the pop of the populists uh, if they if they can spin it correctly. Yeah, I, I also see that as one of the probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks to this is is that idea of sovereignty. I mean, what is the the key pillar of sovereignty is having your own military force and that, you know, the monopoly on the use of violence, or I should say the, the monopoly on the legitimate use of violence is the technical speak for how we consider sovereignty in a military force. So I mean if we've had this much criticism about the European economic system being united I would find that we're going to have a lot of difficulty trying to overcome the idea of a joint military force that could actually use uh, use military violence and force and have that be considered somewhat legitimate in the eyes of some people. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, like uh, so, so yeah, that that I see is the biggest stumbling block to all of this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like uh, if you ask any any anyone in Latvia whether, for example, we would be willing to send troops to Iraq if our European allies would would demand it, or whether we would be willing to send troops to Libya, if, for, for example, if Italy would demand it, then everybody would say no. Because, you know, like, the, like those, <laughs> those countries are so far away from our national interests and... Um, and yeah, it's it's um, pretty pro problematic, problematic how you can uh, convince someone that you should you should be ready to die uh, regarding uh, regarding the interests of someone someone you actually don't really know and uh, regarding the interests of someone who is kind of foreign to you. So I'm actually that actually kind of uh, brings up another point with me, and that's I and this is actually I think one of the first things I talked to you about, Tom's, when you uh, were on the Orientalist Express was. I think you're right that a lot of these uh, um, countries which are – and you pointed out the case of what would Spain do if they were asked to fight in Ukraine. And I think that's a great point. It's very far away. You don't know exactly who it is. But when you get to the bigger EU project or the bigger NATO project, I should say, is – I guess what I'm trying to say is everything kind of unraveling from the standpoint of every country is reinforcing its sovereignty more – if the United States was to say go to war in Venezuela for whatever reason, I'm not endorsing it, but if it was to happen, and we called, hey Latvia, we need you to send a couple hundred people, what what would be the point there? And it's kind of that kind of sounds like the same problem that you have with the EU defense form, but it already exists now. What would actually happen? You mean when whether uh, if if such a fund would exist or yeah, or if if, if something like that happened? Because I'm just one of the big stumbling blocks, obviously, that we're pointing out is that uh, EU countries wouldn't want to go defend the interests of a different EU country if it's 
too far away or if it's not within the vital national interest of the country in question. But we already have that. It's even bigger than the EU force, even. It's the NATO. And I mean, you call on NATO to do something and you're in Afghanistan, you're in Libya, you're in all these other places. So I'm just, I guess I'm a little confused as to why it would be a negative for the EU right now when it already exists. Oh, okay. So basically, why it would negative to send troops to uh, to uh, to Libya or Iraq, right? So, yeah, when yeah. when that agreement already exists right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, like, uh, if we talk about operations which are led by NATO, United States, if you 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 mentioned that, right? So uh, in that case, situation is a bit different because everybody wants to be uh, well, not everybody, but uh, like. Uh, the countries which might be against uh, European initiatives regarding military interventions, they might be for United States initiatives. Why? Because they want to be allies <laughs> of the United States, because the United States <laughs> are providing security guarantees. And that's that's the reason why we went to Iraq and Afghanistan with you guys, because we wanted your security <laughs> guarantees so you protect us against Russia. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, Sorry about so, that. So, so, so yes. So that's 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 the way how it works actually regarding United States. Uh, with Europe, it's a bit different because uh, I mean, like, uh, uh, I mean, like, uh, historically, also Europe has been like less uh, willing to go against Russia. Uh, and basically, you try to be more like complacent to its policies, try to cooperate uh, with uh, with Moscow in certain ways. Uh, like the so North, the North, North Stream, Stream pipeline exactly, right exactly, yeah, right. So basically, uh, uh, like America is considered to be like the more reliable ally for us from our from our viewpoint. Um, so um, if you're asking me regarding this uh, willingness uh, to to fight not to not to risk it uh, uh, if, if 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 something like uh, like that already exists um, then basically I would look it from the in, like national interests like um, what kind of interest each country has whether we should like uh, send someone there to help or not so that's how that's, a, that's how that's I would pretty see. interesting yeah yeah so yeah so, Stephen, what do you think about it? I am, I guess, obviously the practicality of it, as we're pointing out, might not exactly be there. But I have a mixed mind on the, I guess, utility of it, if you want to put it like that. The, I'm not sure what is in the best strategic interest of the United States moving forward in the world, whether it be a more of a bipolar system or a multipolar system. I think it's going to be a multipolar system regardless of what the United States wants. And I think that multiple poles of power will always have a semblance of conflict between each other because they have um, different interests and you have the ability to back up those different interests and so I worry that if Europe is a more independent pole of power between the United States, I mean, right now, none of us are talking, oh, well, this is going to lead the war and blah, blah, blah. But it very well could. And it's not going to be in the next 20 years. It's not going to be in the next 30 years. Obviously, that's 
pretty much unthinkable. But in the next 50 years, the next 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, when we're dead, and the kind of the common ties that we have right now are gone, and they're not being reinforced because they're multiple poles and they're competing against each other, what does that world look like? So I'm concerned that something like this 70, 80 years from now, I'm not, I don't know if it leads to war, but it leads maybe to conflict. It leads to outright antagonism. And I'm not sure if that's in anyone's interest. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, this multiplayer argument is uh, pretty prevalent, definitely. Well, uh, I ju I'm just not sure that Europe will be one of those poles of power. I mean, like, they would really, they would really need to have, uh, like, the huge reforms regarding their internal structures and how it's formed from within. Uh, well, actually, I'm not sure whether it's actually possible regarding the, all the populist waves and everything that we are experiencing now. I mean, like, we can see that there is still a strong, strong, uh, uh, strong resistance to integration uh, of having closer ties, closer cooperation. So uh, we might as well see the situation when uh, Europe is again the playing ground as it was in the Cold War period, right? So only, only uh, in, like instead of Ru instead of Ru instead of USSR or Russia, you'll have China. So um, we might see. I mean, Chinese have also become really active uh, already in Eastern Europe. I mean, like they are trying to set up uh, their trade links in the context of uh, New Silk Project. One Belt, One Road. One Belt, One Road. New Silk Road, exactly. They're also getting interested in uh, in, um, in Eastern Europe and the Baltic Sea region, and uh, it just just it's just time when they will also uh, start looking what's happening in the Western Europe as well. I did not so, know that about. Oh, sorry, sorry. I was just gonna say so. Like, I mean, regarding multipolarity, I mean, I agree that it's essentially inevitable. It's going to happen. I think that you know, I'm of the opinion that the U.S. role should be to just manage that in the best way possible to get the best outcome that would prevent, you know, large-scale global conflict, um, you know, to whatever extent that's possible. Um, I guess I just wonder, you know, what I'm paranoid of in, in this type of, you know, if the European Union gets together and creates this military force, what happens when we have, like, a single bad actor that is trying to poison the well of this entire thing? Like, let's say that Russian influence gets to one of these countries and, they just want to try to tear it down from within. How would we stop that? I mean, I think of the classic example of like Turkey in NATO right now is not exactly a great, you know, they're, they're not really operating in good faith in a lot of terms with uh, the NATO alliance. So, I mean, what can happen when we get all these nations together and then one of them decides that they don't really want to play nice anymore with this, uh, with this union? So you basically, well, I mean, you basically, you basically, your argument is the same as uh, in Star Wars, right? That uh, the basically <laughs> Galactic Republic would be uh, taken over by the Emperor and then created uh, yeah, regarding Galactic Empire. <laughs> that is a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, yes, if po if Poland, you know, decides that. That a Sith Lord now takes over Poland and decides to just destroy everything from within. Like, 
what do we do? But I mean, that's a great that's a great argument for individual sovereignty. If you want to get back to that, it that doesn't happen if you have individual sovereignty between states. And if you want to make, like, I, I think, like Tom's what was uh, saying, if you want to actually become more unified, you do have to have those structural forms. And to some point, you have to give up your sovereignty. I mean, that's what you had to do in the United States. In the United States, uh, pre what pre Civil War. All states were basically exactly, and that's why they were called states, because they were independent countries to an extent. I mean, they had to give that up. They're not independent countries anymore. And that's kind of what you'd have to go to. And I don't know, I I think about a lot of this in the hypothetical context of what if this could happen? A lot of it isn't ever going to happen. But then again, we never thought like the prime minister of Australia would be reelected. And that happened. (laughs) Hmm. That's actually a very good argument. I hadn't thought about it a lot. Like, what could happen then? Uh, well, uh, I mean, the only thing we can do is uh, put our faith in democracy, I think, and then and the ability of <laughs> ability of people to choose the, the best leaders. And I, and I mean that, um, you know, the, the problem with populists, right, is that they are always going into power with all those uh, loud slogans and uh, loud oh, promises yeah. and... Uh, bro- like like really like, really like strong ones you know and when they are actually trying to implement it and they are under- they understand it's not possible to do everything as fast and efficient as they have promised uh, basically people are starting losing confidence because if you are going with such so um, um, so uh, such such loud slogans then uh, it's very hard to um, have your uh, have your faith and confidence which was put in you uh, to be um, uh, so, so basically to keep your promise to keep your promise that you that you um, that you promised to your electorate sure that makes a lot of sense to me and no I completely agree with that as well and I think that the other interplay there is when the populace get into government and they can't accomplish their reforms like what you're saying they blame it on a certain a deep state or an entrenched uh, entrenched bureaucracy, which really makes people afraid of their government's bureaucracy. And heads up for everyone out there, bureaucracy is not a bad word. Without bureaucracy, you don't have a modern state. And once you start really vilifying the bureaucracies, you start vilifying the state itself and you lose confidence in democracy, exactly like what you're saying. Yeah. And bureaucracy is, it's supposed to be slow. Like it's supposed to be you know, kind of painstaking and take a while because it is functionally the levers of power within the government. And so you don't want that to operate so quickly that no one can keep up with what's changing because then that's how, you know, that's how authoritarianism rises. Mm-hmm. But do you think that it's possible to uphold this vision uh, that, the, that the bureaucracy is dysfunctional forever? I mean, I, I mean, there must be certain limits when... Uh, Basically, people people start seeing the through that actually leader is just completely incompetent and it doesn't have to do anything with having this functional bureaucracy. I mean, even if they do see that, though, then they and I guess we have that problem in the United States where one populist leader is elected. He doesn't get anything done or she doesn't get anything done. And to an extent, they try to blame the system and it doesn't work. And then they're voted out of office because, hey, they weren't able to get this done. But then the next person comes in and they just say, well, this that, that person in front of me was incompetent. I can actually do what they were saying. 
and it's just that roller coaster of continuous populace coming on, each one saying, the person before me was incompetent and didn't know what they were doing, I do. And we kind of believe them every single time. Yeah, and each one ratchets up the, uh, you know, the anger and the pressure even more. Exactly so like what we Tom's reached, saying, yeah. Yeah, we reached this almost just insanity level. Uh, so you have any ideas how, how to solve it? <laughs> if we had ideas how to solve it, no, I, no, not even a little bit. Well, Tom's, the, the, the best way to solve that is to get educated. And you know how you get educated? By listening to podcasts. Oh, and yeah, by this one. Blogs. Ooh, look at that. Shameless oh. advertising. But I mean, but that really is, you know, like, that's the way that you solve this type of thing is you actually care enough to get educated and to just to just really learn about the reality of what's happening and not just take you know, one person's perspective, one loud, boisterous voice and say like, OK, that's clearly the truth. No, you got to get your information from multiple sources that have a vested interest in in the truth and not in just spinning something to fit your narrative. So and you have to, oh, have to understand that, you know, it's that's the problem of good governance is it requires both sides and you have to you have to be one of those sides, even if the other side is acting you know, in bad faith and is trying to sort of game the system in that regard. You just got to stand your ground and try to uphold those democratic traditions that we all we all know about. So, so we just got to do it. I'm going to disagree with you on that, actually. I do not think it. It requires the United or I said the United States, but I don't think it requires the average citizen of any country to be more educated. I think it requires them to. And this is going to sound kind of anti-democratic to an extent, but to not voice their opinions on things they don't know as much about, and that's not a bad thing. It's not bad to acknowledge that I do not have any idea about the American healthcare system. And I will not voice my opinion on it because I am an uninformed person on that. I, I am very informed on multiple other fronts, and that's because I study those other fronts. It is effectively impossible for the citizen of any country, regardless how small or how large, to be informed on the workings of their government through and through. And so the average citizen needs to kind of take a step back and understand that you're not going to know everything about foreign policy, healthcare, social rights, uh, domestic land right policy. I don't know. Throw in whatever else you want in there at the same time. And you're going to have to kind of separate what you know from what you don't know. And you're going to have to only make choices on what you know. And Sure, sure. And, and that, when I say educated, that's not to say you have to get a degree or anything like that. You oh, just no, have no, to no. try to try to understand what's happening, and then but part of that too that is too is to realize when you don't understand something. Okay. And it's so I guess I can amend it to maybe not necessarily being educated, but at least having that sense of you know, it's going to sound really arrogant, but like that intellectual maturity to just say like, look, I don't know what's happening here, and I'm not going to make an informed opinion on it because I do not have all the information. So no, and I, I don't think that's arrogant at all. I think, and that's exactly what I was saying. Like personally, I know nothing about the U.S. healthcare system, even in the slightest. And so, if you ask me a question on that, I'm going to go, I don't know. I have no idea. And people are going to say, Well, how how can you not know? Well, I'm busy reading a whole bunch of stuff on foreign policy, a whole bunch of stuff on security related issues, and 
in a modern world, you have to prioritize what you are actually learning. And you, there is no room for the jack of all trades because the jack of all trades will hold a whole bunch of a whole bunch of information and a whole bunch of opinions, and all of them will be wrong because none of them are nuanced. And that's what we're asking a lot of people to do nowadays. I might I might agree on you on a certain way, but at the same time, I mean, like, uh, I mean, if you are a leader of the government, I mean, I think you need to also have some sort of generalist perspective. I mean. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm afraid that uh, basically that if you are putting uh, all responsibility to your advisors, to your ministers, or whatever you want to call it, secretaries, or I think it's secretaries in the United States, right? Like secretary of agriculture and etc. Uh, I mean, like um, they can just easily say uh, to you what they want you to, what they what they uh, they basically they can just uh, give your opinion and you just accept it without thinking, right? And um, that might also um, maybe uh, be um, like hinder re- reforms or changes if you want them to make to get through um, if you want to make them as a leader because uh, basically. Um, um the minister or secretary will say we have done the, uh, in such a way for tens of tens of years so why should we change it now right so you 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 don't know anything about it anyways and you have to trust me so um it might it might work and um it it might work also as a double edged sword that's what i'm saying sure no i could definitely get and i guess my amendment on that would be I do agree with you. I think that if you're the leader of a country or if you're making the policy decisions for a country in a generalist mode, so say uh, you're a parliamentarian where you're going to have to make a whole bunch of decisions on a whole bunch of different issues, you should be a generalist and you should know more about everything. But on that same front, I think that those people are or should be fairly few and far between. And that's their job is to know a little bit of everything and very nuanced little bits of everything for the average citizen, the average Lithuanian, the average American. Um, it's you, you, they already have different jobs. They have to go to work nine to five, uh, work at a factory, do paperwork, build machines, whatever they're doing. And that time is already spent doing something else. I think that the policymaker's job is to know all this sort of uh, nuanced information. So I, I hold them to a different standard, I guess. I mean, I generally agree. Uh, I do take a little bit issue with, I mean, I think that people have the capacity to know a lot more than, than maybe they do right now. I mean, come on, look, it's just Google something. Like it's, <laughs> we have the entirety of the world's knowledge at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips. So some of this you can, you know, you can at least get the basics of. I mean, I'm not saying that people have to know, you know, every single country that's going to be in this proposed uh, military alliance and how each one feels about a certain given set of issues. It's, you know, it's pretty easy to at least get kind of the general basics of it so you can make your own informed opinion. But I do agree that generally speaking, yeah, people have other things to worry about. So, I mean, we are the only ones right now who are extremely worried about this creating some type of like world war three on the european continent not 
most of the people aren't really all that concerned about it, and understandably so. They probably don't need to be all that concerned about it, but at least we're here to inform and uh, help them make their own decision on that. I see. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I apologize. It's, I, my, my argument sounds very anti-democratic, and I apologize <laughs> for that. Well, well, it's it would be anti-democratic if you were saying people should not know any of this at all. And we should keep them stupid and in the dark and just keep them busy working in factories and Ant -democratic. take all the information away from them. <laughs> Anti-democratic would be if we would say, uh, we know what's better for you. We, you don't have to worry about anything. Mm -hmm. we, will, we, will make yeah. every, we will take care of you and, <laughs> and get, uh, make your life great and uh, take all decisions for you. You just live how you are and everything will be great. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds... Shockingly, like the president's Twitter account these days. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's what happened in Soviet Union. Like one on one, you you just like do what the government says, and they'll take care of you. And why you should why you should care about politics if like people are like taking care of you? That's well, still Russia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. <laughs> Well, that's an, that's why I find kind of, and this is a little bit uh, off topic, but that's why I find the Chinese form of political mod, uh, Chinese political model so pernicious is that they do make the social contract there where if you do not care about any of the politics going on in the country of China, then we will take care of you and just let let father or brother, mother, whatever you want to say, let the Chinese government take care of you don't care about how it's done because I will let you know that it will be done. And that's a very, very terrifying form of government because it, it's very prone to abuse. Well, and I think what's really terrifying is sure. It's kind of similar to Russia in that regard, but the Chinese actually do seem to be kind of taking care of people like in, in but a way that was at so least pernicious because yeah, it's working. Because like, the Russians would just be like, yeah, sure. We'll take care of you. And then they just don't. Uh, and obviously people see right through that, but China actually, you know, kind of is taking care of like at least the majority of, of the people who, who adhere to that and to just, you know, give up their power and let, let the government take care of things. There actually are kind of taking care of them. So yeah, you're right. That's why it's so pernicious and difficult is, you know, th yeah. they actually don't want to, uh, to see that go away. And all you need is it's the bad emperor problem. You can have the country be governed it's from way back when you could have the governor uh, the country of france be governed by seven generations of great kings all it takes is one bad one to rip down the country oh, and yeah. that's that's the model where they're running on right now all it takes is is one mad king aries to just bring the entire <laughs> Targaryen down and, and then Don't one worry. bad Baratheon who just didn't care about governing and Spoiler alert, and, uh, Danny will take care of it for you. Yeah. Like, fire. Uh, she'll take care of it in one way. That's... <laughs> oh, this new season of Game of Thrones, I'm so disappointed, guys. But anyway. What? <laughs> oh, no. I'm, I... So I'm disappointed not enough people have died yet. That is my disappointment. Are you guys ready for tonight? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. For, for me, it will be tomorrow because, uh, like, you know, oh. like time zones. And uh, I hate it. Yeah. Every time oh. there is internet, which is full of, which is dark and full of spoilers. And it's, just, and it's, oh. and it's all the time the same. Sorry, freaking thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm prepared for this, yeah. 
already tomorrow. So yeah, yeah, Stephen. I think if you're worried that not enough people have died, uh, I think in about 12 hours we'll we'll probably feel different. That's what I'm actually going to say. Hey, guys, we should take a bet right now, right here. How many main characters are going to die in the next episode? Hmm. Grave War. I'm going to take a bet think, on this. Grave War, I think, will die. Oh yeah, he's gone. He's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Danny's gone. Yeah. Uh, who, I, who else? Who else do we have actually alive? Yeah, right. I'm trying to think of that now. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I think Drogon will die. The dragon. Oh, I think for sure. If, he, if, if Daenerys dies, he's got to go. I think that you know. I actually think that. Um, I was going to call him Rob. Jon Snow is going to go. I think he's going to be dead. Why? I don't know. <laughs> because because you can't have happy endings in this. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Makes here's, sense. here's the thing, though. That, is that really a happy ending? Like, if he... Because my thought is he probably ends up having to... Like, he has to personally kill Danny, And it's, like, tragic. And, and it's all sad. And... He lives, but like he hates the throne. He doesn't want this. No, so. and, and he, so and that's he, not that's not really a happy ending. Right? I mean, if, if the, he has to rule, it will be a really sad ending. I mean, like he he won't be able to go back to North, and Ghost is actually somewhere on the right? other side he just of the abandoned ball. him. <laughs> <laughs> he should he should have just pet the damn dog. Right? Oh and my then, god! I was so disappointed. I don't Dude. understand why he did that. It's that I don't know. I still don't understand. But, no, see, I think that if, uh, I keep wanting to call him Rob, if John takes the throne, because he's basically Cincinnatus and he doesn't want the throne, he'll be a good leader for the Westeros. And if he's a good leader for the Westeros, that's a happy ending in my view. <laughs> Therefore, it can't happen. <laughs> well, it's a happy ending. It's a happy ending, but at what cost? I mean, they said it would be bittersweet. Yeah, We've seen a lot yeah, of bitter. Yeah. I imagine the sweet would be... Yeah, he's ruling over the kingdoms, but he hates it, and there's not really much left. Yeah. <sighs> oh, my. Oh, George R. R. Martin. Just write the dang books right, already. Please, please do. Because, <laughs> right. because, I mean, the show has a, a bit ruined it for oh, me. And I, yeah, it's gone just all over the place. Yeah, right. So I, I'm, like, I'm like expecting books to actually fix everything what the writers I did. hope so. I have a theory that George R. R. Martin is right now watching all this happen, and he's trying to figure out the one thing the fans hate most, and that's what he's going to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Then just don't even write the books. Just say, okay, the show is now canon. Done. Like, that's what the fans that hate the most. Oh, my. Oh, my. Please. Please don't mention that. I'll be having nightmares. <laughs> just, just imagining that. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests Stephen and Toms for their insight and analysis, as well as the listeners and readers of the blog. Remember to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.